You know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, there have been books written like this um, and studies, and, and I don't know if you pay much attention to sociological research, but, but there's, a, there's a phenomenon going on in our, in our culture, and here's the phenomenon. Our culture is very spiritual. I don't know if you've noticed that when you bumped into people, but people are pretty spiritual. Um, but, they're, but they're not religious, and there's a, a, a thing you'll bump into quite often uh, in our culture, uh, and even among many people who follow Jesus or say they're Christians, they'll say things like this, man, I'm a Jesus follower, but something's really gone wrong with the church. Have you heard that before? Like, I'm a Jesus guy. Like, I, I'm a Jesus follower. But, I mean, honestly, even the term Christian has all this baggage to it. And I don't know if I like that. And I definitely don't want to say I'm a Baptist or a Pentecostal or whatever other denominations are. I don't want one of those um, distinguishers over my life. You know, I, I do kind of follow Jesus. But, but this, thing, this thing called the church has got a lot of baggage on it. And I'm not sure I like that. In fact, there was even a book written uh, called... Um, I like Jesus, but I don't love the church. And, um, you know, it, I think it hits on a, a, an idea, an underlying idea. And the underlying idea is that somehow the church, or what most people are thinking of when they think of the church is organized religion, that somehow that has been built on a bunch of different foundations of teachings and ideas and philosophies and ways of doing things and organizational structures and money and, and all of this different stuff. And, and then there's Jesus. And what we see about Jesus is there's Jesus and he's a movement maker and he's a healer and he's a lover and he just cares about people. And, and, and there's Jesus and who doesn't like Jesus? Like he's cool. Like, he's amazing, he's beautiful, he's kind, he's wise, wow. And then you got this thing called the church, and it's, it's messed up. And it's got scandal, and it's got underhanded things going on, and it's about power structures and control. And, and so there's this kind of struggle with that. And, and, but what's really, really interesting is if you were in the first century, it would have been impossible to separate the mission in this group of people, this ragtag group of people who had no power, by the way. No one who said they were a follower of Jesus, who said they were a Christian, had any kind of social power till you get to the fifth century. 500 years of getting your teeth crushed in and losing everything you had if you said you followed Jesus. No social power till you get to 500 years down the road. So you don't have any political influence, nothing. You don't have any weight to throw around in terms of how things ought to be done in the culture, right? You're a marginalized, crushed, chased, kicked out group of people. And you center everything you do in the gathering of the people of God around the person and the work of Jesus. So much so that Paul, who's planting most of the churches in the known world at the time, in the Greek-Roman world, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is what he says, and it's a, it's a mind-blowing thing. He says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. 
with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. So here's what he's saying. He's saying at the centerpiece of everything I'm calling you to do and everything I'm asking you to do and everything I'm pointing your lives toward, I'm saying we proclaim Jesus. We proclaim him and not ourselves. And we're your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And he's pointing all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where Moses tells us that the story of God starts with God on the scene and God saying, let there be light, and light filled the universe. He says, for the God who said, let there be light and shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the beauty and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. Jesus is the whole shooting match. Jesus is the whole shooting match. And that when you look into the face of Jesus, you're looking into the beauty and the glory of God himself. And he said, the only thing we proclaim to you is Jesus as Lord. And that's really helpful for us because if we're discouraged, and you know, I, what's kind of some of that sparked some of this is, is as I had a conversation with a family member of mine who's been struggling, um, been struggling to, to follow Jesus, and a lot of it has to do with some of the baggage of growing up in a, in a, in a, in a religious home, a Christian home, and we love Jesus, but, you know, has all this baggage to it. And uh, we spent two hours talking, and we got done with in two hours of our conversation of just kind of dissecting some of the legalism and some of the ways the church worked and some of the ways we were taught um, to figure out relationships and some of the different things we were navigating. And, and I got to the end of that conversation, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, it's wild to me. We've spent two hours. We have yet to come across one thing Jesus ever said. We've bumped into all kinds of rules and religion and practices and behaviors and things that we were told to do and, and, and ways all this is supposed to work and, and all this different stuff. And we have yet to bump into one thing Jesus ever said. And religious people and people who are in the church, we can do that. We can live a lot of our lives and never encounter Jesus. And we don't want to do that. So what we're going to do for an extended period of time then is we're going to look in at the life of Jesus for 16 chapters over what's probably going to take us longer than a year. We're going to week after week after week set aside what we think we know about the church, set aside what we think we know about religion, set aside what we think we know about how Christians are supposed to live and what we're supposed to be doing. And we're going to say, hey, if we proclaim Jesus, if Jesus plus nothing equals everything, then we're going to look at Jesus himself, for what he says, what he does, on his own merit. And we might be really surprised. We might be floored at what he says. We might be floored by how he acts. And we might be floored by the way he wants to put his disciples in motion. We, we just might be shocked. And that might be a really good thing for us individually and as a family. So just a couple things just to set this up as we look in at the life of Jesus here in chapter one. 
a couple things that I think are helpful for us just as we're getting our mind around what's going on here is this book is written in about 50 AD, in the mid-50s AD. Now, some say it could be as late as 60s AD. Um, those are still very, very early. And, and, and this is really helpful for us for this reason. This is a biography. Mark's writing a biography, and he writes it early enough so that if something is wrong or if someone could contest what he's in the biography, people are alive to contest it. In other words, Mark is accountable to his community to write an accurate account of what happens in the life of Jesus. This is not written in the 200 years A.D., like many of what we call the Gnostic Gospels. So if you know much about the Gnostic Gospels and some of the other Gospels that have come along and that are not in the canon of Scripture, one of the reasons they're not in the canon of Scripture is things like the Gospel of Thomas aren't written until the 400 or 5th century. In other words, 400 or 500 years removed from Christ is when you would get the first manuscript, right, of those accounts and the, and the details that they account, in other words, the historical details they account, are 400 or 500 years past the life of Christ. What you got in the, Mar- in the Gospel of Mark is a historical account that dates back to 50 or maybe as late as the mid-60s from the life of Christ, which means if you were a teenager when things were going down with Jesus and you got your hands on a copy of the Gospel of Mark, you could validate whether or not that's what happened. If you're Josephus, who is the premier first century historian living in the first century, and you get on your hands a copy of the Gospel of Mark, you can say, I was in Jerusalem when all that went down, and that's not what happened. But you don't get that. In fact, all you get from Josephus and other historians of at that time is validation of the historical account of what happened. And so that's a really helpful thing for us. This is dated in the mid-50s or to the late 60s. Most good scholarship is agreed on that issue. It's written to a Gentile audience. So where the book of Matthew is written to Jews primarily, so it starts with a long genealogy. In other words, it tells us, you know, this person begat this person, begat this person, begat this person, begat this person. And all of that's to tell you that Jesus came from the family of David. Mark doesn't assume you're a Jew. So he doesn't start that way. He's just going to tell you this is about the good news of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't care to lay out to defend for you that he was from the family of David and the line of Judah, and he's this Jewish Messiah from that. He doesn't need to do that for you because you're not a Jew and you don't care. This is how biographies are written, by the way, right? If a biography is written to you and it matters to you where someone's born from, you tell them. If it doesn't matter to you, you don't tell them, right? So Mark doesn't feel the need to tell you who his great, 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 great grandfather is, all right? He's not concerned about that. And that's helpful for us because we're not Jews and most of us don't have a Jewish background. So this is good for us. We get to lean into a guy who's talking to anybody who's not a Jew about the life and the purpose of Jesus. Written by Mark, and this is really helpful for us, um, Mark probably, Mark is not, by the way, an eyewitness. Mark is a companion of several of the apostles. So he's a companion of Peter. In fact, if you read in Acts chapter 12, Peter was in prison and miraculously delivered from prison. Okay, so he's delivered from prison, and he makes a beeline to a home 
of this woman named Mary, not the Mary mother of Jesus, another Mary. It says she's Mary, the mother of John, whose name is Mark. Okay, so a guy, he had two names, and she goes to his house. Turns out Mark's mom houses a church in her house. And Mark obviously grows up in that house. That's the house Peter goes to when he gets out of prison. He makes a beeline to that house. He knocks on that door. They open up. They go, Peter, we thought you were in prison. He goes, God delivered me out of prison. And then they have a worship service and a prayer meeting at the house. That's Mark's house, which is pretty cool. Okay? Mark is also apparently a young guy at the time of Paul, Peter, and the disciples. Um, so when Paul and Barnabas are traveling to do ministry, Mark wants to tag along, and Paul and Barnabas have a big fight about it because apparently Mark's kind of immature. So they're like, hey, Mark, uh, you don't get to go with us. And Paul's like, I'm going to go plant churches. You're kind of an idiot. And Barnabas is like, it's okay. Idiots can travel with me. That's fine. And so Mark and Bar uh, Paul and Barnabas have a big fight, and they separate over this dumb kid named Mark, which is super interesting. By the way, this is why the Bible is a biography. This is why it's got, it doesn't hide stuff like this. So Mark is this guy that if you read the scripture, he's kind of immature, he's young, he's not an eyewitness, he travels with guys who are eyewitnesses, and then he gets his details from them as he writes down the biography, and that's really helpful. Mark is, but most church fathers call Mark, Mark the evangelist, because Mark is credited by being the first missionary to go to Egypt and plant the first church in Africa, which is a really cool thing. So this drives the heartbeat of who this guy Mark is. He's an evangelist. He wants you to know Jesus. That's why he writes. He wants you to know Jesus. Because he agrees with Paul that Jesus is the whole shooting match. That he is the beginning and the end of everything that our faith is about. And he wants you to know Jesus. And he's an evangelist. And it turns out, according to church history, that he traveled as far as Egypt and planted the church in Africa, which is a really cool thing. All right. So what's he going to be telling us? And here's what we're going to see in chapter 1. He's going to point us from beginning to end that Jesus has come to gather disciples and to send disciples on mission. A universal call to gather people into his family and send them on mission. That's what he's going to show us from the life and the work of Jesus. And he's going to do that by, in the narrative, showing us two things. Who Jesus is, what's his identity, and what does he say? And by looking in, by us looking in, that's going to allow us to live out some really cool things. We look into who is Jesus, and what does Jesus say, and what does Jesus do, that's going to help us live out a couple things when we look into that. One, it's going to help us live out how do we trust Jesus? Like, how do we actually trust him? And I don't mean just like, I believe in God. You know, of course I believe in God. I mean, how do I trust God? How do I trust him with my job? How do I trust him with my finances? How do I trust him with my family and the brokenness in my family? How do I trust him when I've been wounded? How do I trust him when I've been offended? How do I trust him when my marriage has fallen apart? How do I trust him when my kids are suffering? How do I trust him when nothing else makes sense? How do I trust him? We're going to get to look in and live out how do we trust him. We're going to get to look in and live out how we repent. Oh, that's a dirty word in our culture. But there's got to be space 
for us to realize that our life is going in the one direction and there needs to be a redirection of our life. How do we do that? If you've been so stuck, and come on, I know I've been in these places where I've been so stuck in one way of living, I'm not sure how to get a redirect. I'm not sure how to move in a different direction. I know this is broken. I know it's unhealthy. I know these ways of thinking are starting to break things inside of me, but I don't know how to stop and redirect. We're going to learn as we look at this how to repent. That's a thing that's valuable in our lives. How do we redirect and put our confidence in Jesus? We're going to learn how to share Jesus. Like share Jesus the way Jesus wants to be shared. I think a lot of times we share Jesus in ways Jesus is like, don't do that, please. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like if, if we share Jesus in a way that makes someone walk away feeling small, we haven't shared Jesus the way Jesus wants to be shared. We haven't. If we share Jesus in a way that makes someone feel more dirty after they walk away from us than before they met us, we haven't shared Jesus in the way he wants to be shared. If we share, if we share Jesus to people in a way that makes them think that they've got to clean up their life somehow before God loves them, we haven't shared Jesus in the way he wants to be shared. So we need to figure out how to share Jesus in the way Jesus wants to be shared. And he'll tell us exactly how he wants to be shared. That's the beautiful thing about it. He tells us how he wants to be shared. And so we'll get to look at it how he wants to be shared. And I, and I think we're, gonna, we're also going to see, we're going to learn as we look in, how do we suffer? No, Jesus doesn't just suffer for suffering's sake. He suffers for the sin of the world, but he also suffers to say, when you suffer, this is how you suffer. That's important because we suffer. And it's important to know how to lean into that, have some sense of what it looks like to walk out that. So he tells us how to suffer. And in some, here's what he's saying. In some, he's going to show us, as we look into the life of Jesus, he's going to show us what it looks like for our whole person, our whole life, to be transformed by fellowship with him. Every bit of our life ought to be transformed by our fellowship with Jesus. It ought to shade everything we do, and more than everything we do, it ought to shade everything we are. It's a, it's a, it's a reshift of our identity. And that's what he's going to show us. How does that happen? So with that said, I want to show you Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah 40, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. And what's the good news? He's coming, and there's a messenger coming before him, and the messenger has one message, and the message is, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, the big question we ought to ask when we read the text is, how? This is critical. How do you and I, and how do we present to other people the way in which we take our human heart, and we lay it out before God, and we say, God, here's my heart, you're on your way, I'm preparing the way for you. That's a huge question. 
How do we prepare the way of the Lord? How do we get our heart out there to say, God, there it is. Come. And he's going to tell us exactly how we do that. John says in verse 4, John appeared and he was baptizing in the wilderness and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to see him and were being baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. A couple things we need to unpack here for a second. Baptism is an is a action that symbolizes an identity. Baptism is an action that symbolizes an identity. In other words, the word baptism comes from a Greek word that was mostly used to take a piece of clothing and to dye it a completely different color, right? So you, would, you had a bucket of dye, what you would do in that day, and you wanted to turn, maybe you wanted to turn your curtains into purple and they were white or whatever. You would take a bucket of dye, you would grab your curtain and you would plunge it, baptize it into the bucket and you would soak it in the bucket till when you pulled it out of the bucket, it was purple. It was a shift of identity. And John came preaching a shift of identity. That's what he came preaching. And he said that the shift of identity had two components to it. It had a component of what he said was repentance. In other words, a recognition that the trajectory of my life and the autonomy that I lived in and the ways I thought were right to me in the universe was not right. And I was going to say, hey, this isn't about finding myself anymore. This isn't about pushing myself out there anymore. This isn't about me anymore. I want a shift of identity. I want my identity to be shifted. And so he came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. In other words, to a people who did not have hope that their broken mess could be dealt with, that it could be healed, that it could be forgiven for a people who had no hope that their mistakes weren't going to haunt them for the rest of their lives. To those people, John came along and said, there is a pathway for you to be healed, and it's going to require you to let go of your identity and to bury it in the Messiah. That's what baptism is. It's a letting go of our identity, the finding of ourselves, the promotion of ourselves, and burying it in the life of Jesus. And to do that, we repent and we confess our sins. Now, John was clothed with camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you. And remember, when you think baptism, think shift of identity. Think shift of character. Think shift of purpose. 
He will baptize you. I'm baptizing you with water. You're confessing your sin. You're confessing that the trajectory of your life is broken. You're confessing that your own way of doing things isn't working. You're confessing that you're not the king of your life, that you're not the king of your world, that you need a reboot of your identity. And to symbolize that, you get baptized And I baptize you with water symbolically, but there's a guy coming, and he's going to plunge you into a different identity, and he's going to do it through the method of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God himself is going to invade our lives and give us a new identity. That's what he says Jesus is going to do, and watch this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. Bum, bum, bum. And in those days, Jesus came. And what did he do? He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven that came and said, you're my beloved son. To this day, Jesus, at this moment, Jesus has not yet done one miracle. To this moment, he hasn't taught one cool lesson. He hasn't helped out one prostitute. He hasn't touched one leper. He hasn't done nothing. He just shows up on the scene, and the father goes, that's my son. I love you. Wow, look at him. Pretty cool. He's the son, and the father is well pleased with him. And there's some stuff in this passage. I don't want to rush through it because there's some stuff I want to pull apart here for a second. Um, When we get, when we and I'm talking about the, 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 the baptism. There's a physical baptism that's a symbol of a reality. It's happening to our soul. So we, we practice baptism in this church, but it's a symbol. Understand that. It's a symbol. And the symbol is what he's trying to show us here. That when you get baptized, when your identity gets plunged into the personal work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, I want you to show something that was really just cool. He said he's going to baptize you and me by the Spirit. And then Jesus shows up, and what does Jesus do? He gets baptized, and what gets highlighted when he gets baptized? Did you see what got highlighted? The Spirit came down on him, but let me show you what it got highlighted. The family of God. And the clearest picture in the Bible is this picture of the complete family of God. You've got God the Father. Look at my son. He's awesome. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit resting on the Son. And you've got the son doing what the son has come to do, to live out his life in humble obedience to the Father. What Jesus does here at his baptism is an illustration of what he'll do for the rest of his life. Everything Jesus does is in humble submission to the Father. Everything he does. In fact, Philippians, and you'll have to skip a slide here, Matthew, but Philippians tells us this. Look at what Philippians says in chapter 2. Philippians says in 2, verse 6, here's what he says. He says, but have this mind among you. In other words, think like this in the way that Jesus thought. 
He was in the form of God, yet he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and what? And he was found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What Jesus illustrates at his baptism is a echo of what he's going to do at the cross. He's illustrating humility. So here's the awesome thing. When he invites you and I to plunge our identity into Jesus by the Holy Spirit, he's inviting us into a family. And then he immediately shows us what that family looks like. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are a family. And what's the Father doing? He's approving of his children. That's what the Father's doing. That's the father's main passion in life, is to approve of his children. So much so that you can look in Galatians. Check this out. This is awesome. Now, Romans, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8. Look at what the father is stirring in our heart by the Holy Spirit when we plunge our identity into him. Check this out. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. He says, but you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's big for a lot of you, because a lot of you, fear marks your Christian walk. For many of you, fear is what drove your, I better follow God. I better follow God, because I'm going to get struck by a lightning. I better follow God, because I'm afraid. And what he's saying is, when you plunged your identity into God, you didn't receive a spirit of fear. But what did he say? You received a spirit of adoption as children, by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Father, his main passion in life is to approve of his children. And for his children to say, Father, you're my father. Wow, thank you. I love you. I'm here. I've been adopted. I'm accepted. I'm a person of worth and value to you. Father. And the father's job is to look down at his children and to say, I'm well pleased with you. How am I well pleased with you? Because the spirit, your new identity has come into you. And I am well pleased with you. So the Spirit comes down on the Son. The Son walks in humility to the Father by laying down his life, by plunging his own identity, letting go his own rights, letting go his own power, letting go his own identity as the one who sits on the throne and humbling himself all the way to death on a cross. So what's that mean for us? That means when we plunge our identity into God himself, then we're now children. And the same humility that Jesus demonstrates by going under the water himself is the same humility he asks his followers to walk in. The same humility. It's exactly the same thing. And we're going to see it all through the book. The book is not trying to show us a Jesus we can't follow. Everything Jesus is doing is to say, come on. So Jesus doesn't show up and teach. He goes into the water. John's already said, go into the water. 
And Jesus shows up and goes into the water. Why? Because he just wants you to, come on. Come on. I'm a son. You're a son. That's the cool thing. We all know he's the son. But how's he going to help us know we're the son? Hey, hey, listen, when I go in the water, the father's going to show up and he's going to go, son. When you come in the water, what's the father going to do? He's going to go, son, daughter. How do you know? Because that's what happened when he went in the water. That's what he's doing. See, this identity thing is so important because everything else that comes out of our life comes out of a different identity. It comes out of a different person. And we're never going to really encounter Jesus as long as we hang on to the person we think we ought to be and to the life we think we want. Jesus has a different life and a different purpose, and a completely different identity for us. Namely, that we are children, and we are rescued, and we are valuable. That's our new identity. And so that's what he pitches for us. There's one last thing I want to show you here, and then I'm almost done. The same humility that Jesus asked us to walk in, in other words, the humility of letting go of our lives, repenting of the direction of our life, and submitting and plunging our identity into God. The same humility that Jesus wants us to have, he illustrates. But then there's other thing. The same power Jesus walks out is the same power he wants us to walk in. So the Spirit comes on Jesus, and look at, look at exactly what the Spirit does. The Spirit comes on him, in verse 12, and then the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. You get the sense that Jesus' life is controlled by the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is not Superman. He's not an alien. He's a human being. And when he is driven into the wilderness, he's driven by the power of the Spirit. Listen, guys, there are places in areas and things we will encounter real suffering, real challenges, and real temptation, and the Spirit takes us in the same way it takes Jesus. And in the same way, Jesus walks through that temptation by the Spirit, and we know that he survives that temptation by the power of the Spirit. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Everything Jesus does, he does by the Spirit. This is why Jesus needs to pray. Why do you think Jesus needs to pray? He's God. That's like a weird thing. Hey, God, thank you. That's where I am. I'm God. I know. No, Jesus prays. Why? Because he's saying, follow me. You're going to see later in the book of Mark, Jesus sleeps, like needs to sleep. Like he's like, I'm tired. Like people have been pulling on me. These annoying people are pulling on me. I'm not, they're not annoying. He loves them. I would be thinking they're annoying. But, and so he says, I got to go sleep. Why? Because he's not Superman. He's not an alien. He is a human being. God in the flesh. So every area of ministry in his life, he needs the same thing you need. Namely, he needs the power of the Spirit on his life. So you say, well, how did Jesus overcome sin? He overcame it by the Spirit of God. How do you overcome sin? By the Spirit of God. 
You say, how, how did Jesus preach with such passion and authority? They're going to ask him that later, like in chapter 7 or 8. How do you preach like this? You know, and uh, here's the answer. By the power of the Spirit of God. So how do you share Jesus? Do you do it in your own wisdom? Like, I'm brilliant. I got all the arguments. I got it all figured out. No, you do it by the power of God. How did Jesus reach out and touch sick people and see them healed? Did he do it because he was Superman? No, he did it in the power of the Spirit of God. Everything he says, come and do with me, he does it in the same thing he asks you to do it in. He asks me to do it in. So he's humble in the same way he wants us to be humble, plunging his identity into the identity of the family of God. And then he walks out the power of God in the same way he asked you and I to walk out the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. That when we look at him, he reflects the beauty of God, but he invites us into his life. And that's what we're going to see week after week after week. So the band can come back up, and I'm going to pray. And here's what I'd like to do. Um, if, the, if the Bible comes to us, and it challenges us to let go and to plunge our life into God himself... That, that's going to require something of us. And it may require some of us to repent. It may, it may require some of us to look at open rebellion in our heart and mind that we're just comfortable with because we're just going to live our lives the way we think we want to live our lives. And that when we encounter Jesus, Jesus says, let go and come. And that there is a way to be free from the stuff that's wrecking our lives. And so what, we're going to respond in worship. And as we do that, I've got leaders, and my leaders are going to be to this corner and to that corner. And then if you want to come up, you can kneel down at one of these chairs at the front any way you want. You can go to the back corners or you can come to the front. And if there's something in your heart that needs to be broken before God so that as you lay your heart out before God, you can say, God, this is the trajectory of my life. This is the identity I'm grabbing onto. But I want to plunge my life into the family of God, into the purposes of God. I want to know that when the Father looks at me, He says, you're my kid. I'm well pleased with you. You're part of my family. If that's what you want, then I just want to encourage you. As I got leaders, but Lloyd and Leela will go to one area, and Christina's over here. I'll be up here at the front. As we respond in this worship song, if you want an opportunity for someone to lay hands on you and to pray for you, take the opportunity to respond to God this morning. Let's do that.